Memorial Hospital, to be specific, where doctors at Surrey Memorial say the province has two choices, basically. Either they hire more staff in the emergency room or they shut down the ER to new patients. Dr. Urbane Ip is a doctor at Surrey, Surrey Memorial, and he described the situation this way. I want Fraser Health, the leadership, be transparent with the public and say, look, we do have trouble. We understand that we are doing our best. Be patient with us. If my family gets sick, I know if I send them to the hospital and they need to be admitted to hospital, there might not be anybody to take care of them for the first 48 to 72 hours because of the hospital's shortage. And what the doctors want is all in a letter from the Medical Staff Association at Surrey Memorial addressed to the Fraser Health CEO, Dr. Victoria Lee, Health Minister Adrian Dix, and other leaders. They say an ongoing shortage of house doctors has made it increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for doctors to give patients the level of care they need. And Dr. Rupjeet Kalan is the president of the Medical Staff Association at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And uh, Dr. Kalan is uh, here now. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to talk with you this afternoon. Right. So, so, I mean, in your words, how bad is the situation in the ER? Describe the challenges that you're facing. Yeah, so, you know, as you alluded to in the opening there, Dr. Urbane Ip, who is an emergency room physician at Surrey Memorial Hospital, uh, outlined the issues quite, quite well. You basically have an emergency department seeing the highest volume per day of patients flowing through it within the province and second highest in uh, North America. And you have a critical shortage of uh, house doctors or hospitalist physicians. And the way that it works in the emergency department is the ER physician is supposed to see the emergent and urgent patients coming through the waiting room, diagnose, um, identify the admitting service, and then hand off that patient. And then that patient's care is supposed to be assumed by uh, an admitting service such as a hospitalist. And that's the part that is lacking right now. So what's happening is the patients are flowing through. They are being seen uh, by the emergency room physician, but then there's a gap in care, which can extend to as much as 48 hours, uh, which is really the critical period uh, where clinical status can change. And you really do need um, timely assessment by a house doctor. And furthermore, because there's that gap and that lack, the ER physicians uh, are having to shoulder that responsibility, which then leaves them unable to timely see the patients flowing through the emergency department. So this is just not a question of waiting times. This is also the quality of care that the people who are getting through are getting. Exactly. Um, You know, when you've got a situation where you don't have uh, enough physicians, um, they have to work faster to look after more patients in a a timely fashion. And that is going to compromise the quality of care per patient. Um, And that extends not only to physicians, but to all of the allied health professionals that go into looking after a patient from nursing staff physiotherapist, occupational therapist, pharmacy, everyone is that's involved in the patient's care. When there's a shortage, each one who is available has to do extra duty, and that's going to compromise the quality of care that a patient is receiving. Right. Is it mostly a shortage of house doctors, or is it equal among nurses and other, other health workers? 
Yeah, so it's, you know, it's important to talk about that because right now the focus is on the hospitalist service, uh, and, and that's a fair focus right now because it, that's an immediate requirement. But there are shortages uh, across all of the allied health professionals, physicians, hospitalists, nurses, um, the allied health professionals, the technicians, the unit clerk, everyone that functions in that hospital plays a role in patient care, and there are shortages across all of those services. Right. So it doesn't seem like the government has been all that transparent through this. You sent this letter mid-May, and uh, it was only started to be talked about because uh, the media discovered it. But uh, how do you feel the government has you know, reacted uh, to the letter? Yeah, and that was part of the, the focus or the goal of the letter is we feel that there hasn't been transparency uh, from the leadership, both at Fraser Health and the Ministry of Health, in really sort of, for lack of a better word, advertising to the public the actual state of affairs in their hospital. Um, and it's, it's about managing expectations. So when they neglected to do that, what it does is it places the onus on the frontline healthcare worker to account for the substandard of care that is being provided. And it doesn't allow accountability for the system level factors, the system deficiencies that are contributing to that substandard care. So, you know, we felt that because there had been that silence on their part, we as physicians owe a duty to our patients and to the public to advocate for their rights and to inform them to, to, the, to the crisis playing out and help manage some of the expectations. Right. So is it as simple as just hire more doctors? I, you know, that's part of the problem, the human resource component. There's definitely a huge deficit in the human resource component in our healthcare system, especially south of the Fraser. Um, that's an important component, but it's not the entire story. The, mm-hmm. the deficiencies are many and they're multifactorial. Um, you know, recently on, on the news, we've heard about the lack of the ability of Surrey Memorial Hospital to manage the three leading causes of death. We do not have a cath lab at Surrey Memorial Hospital. We don't have adequate interventional radiology capabilities at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And I could go on and on. The list is long and it is a multifactorial um, problem with deficiencies across multiple areas. And before I let you go, as the president of the Medical Staff Association at Surrey Memorial, um, how does it feel to possibly have to shut down the ER to new patients to you as a, as a, as a doctor? Yeah, and, and I think that's an important question, and I'm glad that you asked it. You know, we don't ask this lightly. It is heartbreaking for us to tell the public, hey, this is your public hospital, but it cannot serve your needs. This is a decision that was not taken lightly, but what is happening if you continue to keep it open and allow patients to flow in is you're creating an illusion of care. And what it does is, again, it places the onus on the individual frontline healthcare worker to account for the deficiencies, provides an illusion to the public that all is normal at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and you are going to receive excellent care when you get there, and allows the, the, the health authority and the Ministry of Health sort of to not really be held accountable for, for letting the public know that's just not the case. 
So we don't take this decision lightly, but we, we are at a point where we feel like we have no other choice. If the volume continues to flow in, it is going to result in, you know, physician burnout and even more exodus uh, of uh, healthcare workers from our hospitals. Right. And are you happy with the communication with the government at this point, today and yesterday? So, you know, I, I had an opportunity to listen to uh, Minister Adrian Dix's response. Um, our frustration is that they are general sort of facts that Minister Dix sort of reports each time. But there hasn't really been that granular specific communication regarding the, the level of the crisis, the level of system failures that have contributed to it, to really be as transparent as possible and take ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really all we're asking for. Take ownership that there are system level deficiencies, that the care is, is substandard. It isn't business as usual at Surrey Memorial Hospital. So to date, we have been disappointed by, by the response. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me on. Big announcement today from the BC government of a government about housing targets as they try to ease the housing crunch in the province. Uh, this is BC's housing minister, Ravi Kalan. Last November, we introduced the Housing Supply Act, historic new legislation to help deliver more homes for British Columbians faster. This provides government with the authority to set housing targets in municipalities with the greatest needs, uh, with the highest projected growth. Today, I'm pleased to announce that the first 10 municipalities that have been selected for the housing targets. The municipalities are the District of West Vancouver, Abbotsford, Delta, Kamloops, the District of North Vancouver, the District of Oak Bay, Port Moody, the District of Saanich, Vancouver and Victoria. So to hit these targets, it will mean more multi-unit structures uh, instead of big single-family homes, more townhomes, more legal suites, basically dense, more density. It's an aggressive step for the province, basically telling those districts to start creating more homes or the B.C. government is going to step in and do it for you. And to talk about that and some other ideas that the government has to ease the housing crunch, it's Michael Geller, a planner, real estate consultant, and retired architect. Michael, always glad to talk to you. Martin, it's my pleasure. All right. So are you hopeful about this announcement today? Because it kind of makes me wonder, like, why if the local governments can't fix it, then how can the B.C. government get it done? But are, are you optimistic? I actually am optimistic. When you have frank conversations with politicians at the local level, they often tell you that they're sometimes reluctant to approve a project that they think should go ahead in case it's going to cost them at the ballot box at the next election. So to be able to say to people, look, we're required to approve 1,200 units this coming year, and so I will be supporting this project. It makes it easier for the politicians. They may not admit that, but I think that's a reality. The other thing, uh, Martin, is it's a bit of a carrot and a stick approach. So, yes, uh, they're on a list, uh, and if they don't approve it, the province may come in and overrule a, a municipal decision. But the other side of the coin is if they do meet their target, 
then I suspect there will be provincial funds to go towards community amenities and transportation and other things. And so that's why it's kind of a, a, a two-edged sword. But overall, I'm, I, I'm positive about it. Right. So as uh, we're, we're going to talk to the housing minister a little later uh, about uh, the different municipalities, how some are a little more amenable <laughs> than others. But I want to ask you, because you're such an expert on planning uh, and, and housing and, and how to you know, effectively you know, put people into homes, what do you see as the, the answer to all this? What would you like to see built, say, in Vancouver and North Vancouver and West Vancouver and, and you know, Delta and Abbotsford? Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's a coincidence, but I'm speaking to you from Sun Peaks, where I am attending a planning institute, provincial planning institute conference, and just came up from a session talking about creative ways to create home ownership, affordable home ownership. So in other words, we are talking about not just rental housing. We're not talking about just housing the homeless. I think the province is talking about a broad range of of housing. And many of the ideas that are being pitched here, I think, make a lot of sense. I attended a session this morning in a room with standing room only to talk about how to finance growth and how to finance uh, approvals in a way to make development happen. And, I mean, 10 years ago, planners wouldn't have been interested in a session on how to finance growth. Um, But the mood has changed. One person made the comment, and I think it's a good one, they were talking about community amenities. They said sometimes just getting the development to happen is in itself a community amenity. <laughs> and, and, you know, speaking of development and permits and how long they take, do you think that uh, that is clearly something that needs to be fixed, the whole permitting process? Absolutely. And in fact, Jazz and I discussed uh, earlier this year the fact that my Christmas card this year was 12 ways to improve the approval process for the 12 days of Christmas. And I did send it to the minister and I've sent it to some of his officials, uh, one of whom gave uh, gave a talk this morning as well. Martin, if I could put it this way, you may have heard the expression, build it and they will come. Well, in this case, I think it's build it or we will come. And uh, I think that's going to work. uh, I think that's going to uh, be an incentive. What's interesting, too, is I've been reading press releases from different uh, municipalities. And with one or two exceptions, they're all generally saying we welcome. We're pleased to be on the list. I mean, the truth is, I'm sure privately, some of those councillors, especially some in the district of North Vancouver and at the risk of never getting an approval again in the district, unfortunately, there are councillors in the district who got elected, proudly elected, on the fact that they said they're going to slow down growth. They're not going to approve condominiums. I mean, it sounds to me it's, it's, it's completely inappropriate to have politicians proud of the fact that they don't want to see condominium and ownership housing built in their municipality. So I don't think there was any question that the district of North Vancouver would be on the list. But that said, the director planning, who's here at the conference and who I spoke to this morning, said, look, we are working towards this. We have been approving housing, but I think they will start approving a lot more as a result of this provincial initiative. Yeah, I guess the days of the big monster single-family home are, are done. Uh, Michael Geller, always a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks for taking the time today. It's my pleasure. All the best. And here's a stat. 
that surprises me in connection with all the overdose deaths that we're seeing in BC. This is data from the BC Coroner Service released last year. It showed the highest percentage of people who died from opiate overdose in the province from 2017 to 2020 were people who smoked their drugs rather than injecting them. 56% of the overdose overdose deaths were attributed to smoking the drug, and I guess it's mostly fentanyl, and only 19% injected it. 18% was from snorting the stuff, 5% ingested it by mouth. And that brings us to the Health Canada-approved drug consumption sites in the downtown east side. They're set up so that the drug user can safely do the drugs with supervision, and uh, the idea is that it's safer, and it has a lot of support, that idea. Trouble is... There's no smoking inside, and while there are some outdoor inhalation spaces, at this moment it's very limited. Uh, Now a health and research organization, the Center for Excellence in HIV-AIDS, has applied to the city of Vancouver to open six indoor inhalation booths. Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry is behind the idea, and he is here now. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm great, Martin. How are you? Great, great. Uh, I was surprised by the stat. Were you surprised by this stat? Uh, how many overdoses were from inhaling the drug? No, we've 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 known of that sort of trend uh, as it's been emergent for the last few years. So it's been uh, incredibly uh, disheartening uh, for sure because it, it's been one of those pieces that we haven't really been able to to get ahead of. In fact, uh, Dr. Montaner from the uh, uh, the Center for Excellence of HIV/AIDS, who's sort of pioneering this new approach, uh, he he pointed out that they've had actually no fatalities in the case of supervised uh, injection. But the reality is is that with inhalation, there is no sort of option for supervision unless it's in an outside facility, and even that's not really covered by by WorkSafe BC. So this is a, an important and overdue intervention uh, to save lives. It seems a little. Uh, less scientific to smoke it to me because is it harder to manage the dosage when you're smoking or I would expect so but I mean I think we're, we're talking about unregulated drug supply so even if you're injecting it you're not really sure probably what you're getting in the, in the substance so you're you're diluting it with water and it, it could be you know three parts fentanyl one part heroin you know eight parts rat poison uh, so I think you know the reality is it's a you really don't know what you're what you're smoking or what you're injecting, so neither are especially well regulated, and that is, in its essence, the reason for supervised consumption services in the first place, because we have such an unregulated supply of of largely toxic drugs um, that nobody really knows what they're getting. Mm-hmm. So. I, I guess it seems obvious that if you're going to have safe consumption sites, I mean, I, I almost want to always say safe injection sites. That's sort of the bias is towards injection. But to think it, it, it should involve the way the drugs are consumed. But at the same time, this problem just seems to get worse. What, what are we not doing? Is it not enough sites? Do we need maybe better management of the sites that we do have? Well, and I, I want to just sort of go right back to the start. We don't actually call them safe consumption sites at all anymore. We call them supervised consumption sites because I think the reality is, is there's, you know, we're, we're not talking about safe usage. Right. We're trying to reduce the amount of harm, and that's sort of the principle of harm reduction. Um, you know, I think this particular intervention is, is really overdue, and I think it's part of 
moving towards a, a more proactive solution. I mean, obviously, we need to, to really have more, more treatment available. Uh, we need to have more drug testing available. I think that's a big piece that's, that's missing from, from our current approach, um, you know, which with, with, with not just drug testing strips, but they have, uh, there's a few places in town that have deployed spectrometers that can actually analyze the content of the drugs before they're using them. And that, in essence, has been sort of the move around decriminalization is to get, get ahead of this sort of toxic drug supply. And I think the other thing, when we take a larger zoom out and look at, at British Columbia, uh, a lot of these overdoses are really happening outside of the downtown east side, and they're happening in, in small towns. They're happening in work camps where folks are, are you know, doing uh, resource extraction or infrastructure development work, uh, and they're they're just working folk, and they're you know, chipping away on the to oftentimes relieve a little bit of pain or or just for you know recreation. Uh, but that's where we're seeing a lot of overdoses as well. In fact. When it comes to areas like the downtown east side, it's actually quite well served by um, supervised consumption sites. But I think what, what Dr. Montana in this project has really kind of illustrated is that there's a, a technological approach that can address this inhalation issue. Because my understanding is it's sort of like a vacuum chamber. So you can go in there and, and you can smoke. And in the event that the person overdoses, the attending nurse can, can press an emergency button and it will literally suck all the smoke out of the, out of the chamber and allow them to enter safely and, and do, you know, the necessary medical intervention. Right. And uh, so many of the overdoses that you hear about, they're, they're um, due to fentanyl being where people didn't know the fentanyl was. It was in some meth or something. Um, can these sites look at the drugs and somehow, and, and, and somehow measure them? And can they find unwanted ingredients or is that impossible? No, 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 that is the technology behind the sort of the mass spectrometer that, that will analyze what's, what's in whatever, you know, drugs you bring into it. And I, I don't know how it works scientifically, but it, it really does get down to the exact, you know, minutia of percentages of what is in the substance that is being brought in. And, and apparently that's quite illuminating because I think a lot of people realize that they're, I mean, it's oftentimes like, you know, gypsum or something in there that they, they think is drugs, but then there's a, you know, and that's where the advantage, I guess, to adding fentanyl to any substance can can give it more of a high, um, while not actually reflecting what they're purported to be. Right. When you buy it. So let, let's zoom out a little bit. As a Vancouver City Councilor, you know what what's your I, I don't want to say mood, but your feeling like the downtown east side right now, Hastings Street. There was a lot of talk a month or two ago. They were cleaning out the the sidewalks, but nothing seems to have changed. Are, are you are you feeling disheartened by what's going on in the downtown east side? Uh, I mean it's it it is uh, depressing for. Um, a number of reasons, but I think one of the, the, the things I also recognize is that the downtown east side um, doesn't provide a lot of opportunity for folks to sort of escape that milieu, um, and 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 it it can be kind of a, a a vortex of despair in many respects. So you know, oftentimes we, we you know members of the public might look sort of disparaging at folks who are on Hastings Street addicted to drugs, um, using drugs, the various kind of homeless or or whatever the case is. And, and see them as a as a failure, but in fact, the failure is is as we as a society having given many folks no other option, and we expect them to pull themselves up up by their bootstraps when they're surrounded by by predators, you know, by uh, deprivation, poverty, uh, a lot of a lot of negative interactions. And and you know, I've talked to so many folks because I live in the neighborhood, 
Um, and many people who, who are there, you know, they, they, got, they got injured on the job and they had to resort to, to painkillers. And then when the prescription didn't work or it ran out and then they resorted to street drugs. And then the next thing you know, they're, 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 they're you know, uh, addicted in the downtown east side. And that's where we put all our housing and our resources. And we don't really and it's, it's really hard. To, it's, it's hard to kick if you're in the downtown east side. It's hard to kind of lift yourself up by the bootstraps as the vernacular goes. So, you know, there's a, a, a multitude of failures. I do want to notion, you know, at least address the notion that, that, you know, with the provinces move towards decriminalization, it's a really important sort of point where, where I think there needs to be kind of those additional pillars of harm reduction introduced. It was a bold move to, to go with decriminalization, but I sit on the, the, the Health and Social Development Committee at the Union of BC Municipalities, and I can tell you from across British Columbia, uh, we haven't seen the resources going to local governments to support the kind of full spectrum of harm reduction. So we're not seeing the drug testing opportunities. We're not seeing the supervised consumption site opportunities. We're not seeing, um, you know, the treatment opportunities. And those those also have to be a part of this larger equation uh, so that, that decrim in and of itself is not like this one, one leg on a three-legged stool and, and doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. Well, Pete Fry, uh, thanks for talking to us. It's a problem that has dogged this city for so long, and I, I guess we're, we're not going to be able to solve it here this afternoon. But uh, thanks for talking to us. Mark, my pleasure. Yeah. Take care. The B.C. government has released the names of 10 municipalities that will be required to hit housing targets. And they include Vancouver, North Vancouver, West Van, Delta, Abbotsford, Port Moody, among others. To hit those targets, it will mean more multi-unit structures uh, instead of the big single-family home, more townhomes, more legal suites, more density. So what happens if these districts don't meet the targets? Well, they will risk being overruled by the housing ministry who could step in and pretty much take over, uh, it appears. It's a bold step, and uh, BC's housing minister, Ravi Kalon, made the announcement today, and uh, he is with us now. Hi, thanks for being here. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great. Now, we talked to Michael Geller earlier, the uh, you know city planning expert, and he had a theory that the municipal governments might actually like this plan because uh, it gives them someone to blame. Well, well, uh, you know, I respect Mr. Geller, and uh, and uh, and if, if that's what local governments need to get housing built, uh, then they blame away. Um, <laughs> but in the end, uh, the goal for us is uh, to get housing built, and you know, we have a major challenge right now, which is uh, housing is just completely unaffordable for people. Coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a, an increase in people uh, coming to British Columbia for economic opportunities. We need that. We welcome that. But that means we have to keep up with building housing at that pace. And so, um, you know, whatever it takes for local governments to to get to those targets, whether it's blaming me or just, you know, going to their community and and using the targets and and making a community plan uh, where we want to see the housing built. So whatever it takes. So what's the response been like from the municipal governments? Uh, Have they been supportive of the plan for the most part? Yeah, I would say for the most part, um, you know, majority of the communities have said, you know, listen, we understand, uh, you know, I think most of them appreciated that we didn't just randomly pick communities. Uh, it was informed by data. We, we, we created a, a pretty comprehensive model that looks at uh, housing needs, uh, existing infrastructure and communities, uh, and also how much housing we're going to need to get to affordability levels. And, uh, and so with that, we were able to uh, select these first 10 communities. 
I think uh, providing them that information assured them that this was, uh, you know, being done in a very methodical way. And in the coming weeks, Martin, we're going to be um, sitting down. Our staff will be sitting down with local government staff and saying, here's what we believe the housing targets should be for the community. After about 30 days, we'll be making that uh, public. And then the community has time to go away. The leadership has time to go away and, uh, and have a conversation about where they would like to see that housing being built. Right. And so what types of housing, what are examples of what we are going to see in uh, Vancouver, North Van, West Van Delta? Um, what kind of structures are you talking about? Well, uh, there'll be a variety. Uh, and so this is not just about putting high rises in every community. In fact, it's, it's actually saying the opposite. It's saying, you know, there will be places where there's high risers. There, there will be places where you'll have additional density because perhaps you have SkyTrain or, or, or uh, heavy transit coming through the area. Uh, but it also includes uh, some smaller scale multi-housing. You know, uh, instead of building one giant house that houses, uh, you know, a couple of people, perhaps they have to look at that structure and be able to break it up so that uh, multiple families can uh, live in it. And so, you know, in the end, uh, what I've said to the mayors uh, that I've had a chance to speak to to tell them that this was going to happen is that this is about making sure that both young families have a place here in British Columbia. They can see an opportunity to raise their kids, perhaps in the same community that they grew up in, but also to ensure that there's options available for uh, seniors to have their grandkids living near them as well. So this is about healthy communities and, and making sure people have opportunities here in British Columbia. And what's the process when it comes to planning? Because um, there's a lot of concern that it's just going to be lots of high-rises and lots of high-rises and very dense. But, like, w- what are you thinking about in terms of planning and trying to avoid that? Well, it doesn't have to be. And, and that's the, the beauty of this uh, conversation that we're having, is that there's a lot of ways to get people to be able to have housing without having high-rises. Now, I'm not saying high-rises are bad, so for some communities, they have areas where they think that's where they should be. But, you know, the ability to be able to have more than one family living in, in, a, in a single family lot is the type of example I want to give. And, you know, since we uh, announced, Martin, that we're going to be bringing in, uh, allowing up to four units on single family lots, I've had um, the seniors come up to me and say, you know what, this means when we redevelop our home, we can have units for all our kids to live on. Uh, which is amazing. I've had young people come to me and say, our friends are getting together. We're looking to buy a house and we're going to build something. And all four of us are going to have our families living on the same lot. And so this is the type of interesting intergenerational type of uh, living area that we want to create so that people can also age in place and have their kids around them. I mean, that's that's what healthy communities are about. And I think there's a way to to have that in all communities in BC. Yeah, that's that's clearly... The future, I guess these big sort of monster homes with just a one generation family that it's kind of a thing of the past, really. Yeah, I mean, and, and they'll still be built in some places because some people want them. And if they, if, they, if they want them and they can afford them, the, you know, the market will deliver. They'll continue to have that. But what we're saying is it shouldn't be the only thing that you're allowed to build. Uh, there should be options available for people to be able to build different type of housing to the level that they can afford. And, and that's ultimately what we're trying to do here is give more options. And the housing targets that we're going to place in communities is about that. But it's about saying it's not just unit count. We're not saying just here's how many units you're going to build. But we're saying let's start looking at it more holistically. You know, how many one bedrooms, how many two bedrooms, how many three bedrooms? You know, how do we ensure that uh, if, a, if a police officer or a teacher lives in your community or a nurse lives in your community, that they actually can find the type of housing that they need in the community. Uh, and so all these things can be done 
Uh, we're not the first jurisdiction to have this difficult conversation. Uh, New Zealand, California, there's a lot of places that are having it. Uh, I think it can be done. In fact, I believe it will be done. Right. And I guess it's going to get uh, really easy all of a sudden to get a, a permit for your basement suite in your house. Well, this fall, we're going to be allowing it. I mean, uh, we still want the units to be up to code. We still want the safety standards there. But, uh, you know, no community after this fall will be able to say, we don't want rental suites. Uh, that is something we've committed to doing. In fact, uh, one of the initiatives we're going to be launching is uh, we hear often from people who say, listen, I don't have the money to renovate my space, but if I did, I would create a rental suite. We're going to be uh, launching an innovative program, which will provide loans for individuals that want to do that, and then it becomes non-repayable over time if they rent it at, uh, to a, a renter below market rates. So we're looking at all innovative solutions to get more housing stock on the, on the market, uh, and every idea is a good one. We, we explore all opportunities, and, and, and that's what we need in this type of situation. And is it going to get easier to get building permits? Well, it better. Uh, you know, that's one of the big challenges we have ahead of us. Uh, we've been uh, talking to our local government partners. We've actually taken the steps provincially to significantly increase our resources for provincial permits. Now, that's a small portion of all the permits involved in housing, but we didn't want it to be us saying, you know, you need to be better. We have to be better as well. And, and we've started taking those steps. And part of that, Martin, will be uh, complete digital reform. I mean, you know, there, the, gone are the days where an application comes in uh, on paper. Like, we just can't be doing that anymore. Uh, we have too many communities that are still looking at paper applications. Uh, some of the work we'll be doing in the coming months and leading into next year will be to start digitizing a process so we can start getting more automatic compliance checks. And, and, and then the staff we have can be used for uh, more uh, diverse projects, projects perhaps that require more density and more oversight. So th these are all the things that are in play right now. Right. And it sounds like there's really not a lot of pushback from the governments. They're, they're playing ball. So do you foresee a, a pretty, uh, you know, sort of nice, you're going to play nice with everybody? Well, in the end, Martin, I think uh, most mayors uh, that I've spoken to understand that we're in a housing crisis and they hear from their constituents. I mean, you know, if you've got a home, uh, you're not immune from it. I mean, I talk to people who own homes who say, I don't understand how anyone else can afford to live in the community right now. And so there's an understanding now that is, I think, greater than there's ever been, that we need to find creative ways, quicker ways to get housing built uh, and, and housing that people can afford. And so uh, I haven't had a mayor uh, say to me, hey, the housing is not needed in my community. Now, some have more challenges because... Uh, their, uh, you know, residents in their communities, not always many, but some come to them and say nothing. We don't want anything here. And that's a real challenge for local government. But overwhelmingly, majority of councillors and mayors are like, yeah, we get it. Uh, you know, whether it's their constituents or whether it's, you know, young people in their family, everyone knows we need to have more supply available. And, and so I expect um, that we're going to have cooperation because really that's the best way to get things done. Right. And if this does work, you get lots more built. It's obviously going to affect rents, I guess, and maybe ease the rents, but it's going to take a while. So what's the plan for that? Well, you know, the frank reality, Martin, is it, it, we got here after 30 years of underinvestment in housing. Uh, this is not something that just happened. Uh, it was just governments not wanting to invest in housing. Uh, you know, this idea that somehow government can just get out of the way 
and the problem will be solved is false because we had governments that decided they're going to get out of the way and we've got the challenge that we're in now and so uh, i'm not under any illusion that uh you know in in next six months a year to two years we're going to have a completely solved but what i'm saying is uh you know the status quo uh you know relitigating decisions that have already been made uh, all these things uh, have to change, and that's this is the first step in that direction. Well, R- Robbie, you have a, a large uh, job ahead of you, and I wish you all the best of luck. Well, thank you, Martin. And uh, I was hoping you were going to end it by saying you get the tickets to the hockey game, but uh, <laughs> I guess I'll have to go online and buy my own uh, tickets. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, no soccer <laughs> tickets. Thanks. That's BC's yeah, uh, okay. Housing Minister, Ravi Kalon. It's looking like B.C. may be in for yet another bad wildfire season. Already on northern Vancouver Island near the village of Sayward, there's a big one right now. Last word, it was about 90 hectares in size, four helicopters, 60 firefighters working that one. But it's looking like we can expect a hot, dry summer. The meteorologists are saying that we are transitioning from an extended period of La Nina into an El Nino pattern. I don't know what that means, but we've already had some pretty hot days. And as Christy Gordon told us, that next week's going to be a hot one as well. And with lots of fires comes lots of smoke, sometimes lasting for days in the lower mainland. And uh, they can tell you to stay inside, drink a lot of water, avoid strenuous exercise. But what about the mental health implications? Because there's nowhere to go when you're outside and all the air is compromised. It, it really can be quite terrifying, an existential threat. And Dr. Matthew Chow is the chief mental health officer at TELUS Health, and he's with us now. Hi, Dr. Chow. Good afternoon. Yeah. So let, let's talk about, uh, about the mental health implications of all this smoke, because it seems like whenever we're in the midst of a wildfire crisis, uh, and a health crisis, the first priority is the medical health of people. But the mental health aspect is, uh, I guess, something we should not be ignoring. Absolutely. Um, we've certainly learned the hard way that there is no health without mental health. Um, and certainly over the last couple of years, um, there have been plenty of reasons for, for people to experience a deterioration of mental health. Of course, the pandemic, um, the life-saving restrictions that were put into place, the social isolation that people experience, job losses, uh, and now economic certain uncertainty, and, and, and now these wildfires. Um, lots of strain on people. Yeah, and I, I guess part of that that is is the isolation, especially people who, you know, older people who live alone, they can't go outside. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people are caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, we know that uh, social isolation is both physically and mentally harmful for people. We are social creatures. We are meant to engage with each other socially. Uh, but at the same time, you know, breathing in all these particulates, especially if you're someone that has underlying health vulnerabilities, is also a problem. Um, so it's a tough bind for people to be in. Yeah, and I, I have a very vivid memory. I think it was about two or three years ago, and the, the air in Vancouver was really bad, and I went outside, and I just had this overwhelming feeling that all the air was compromised, and it was, it was quite terrifying to, to realize there's really nowhere to go. Yeah, I, I, I remember those, uh, those, those seasons. I remember the heat dome, of course, uh, 
you know, where we had a spectacular wildfire season, you know, even erased an entire community, you know, off the map um, because of because of fire. Uh, and so, you know, you described it as an existential threat, and certainly you can feel that way when the sky looks like, you know, you're on on Mars. Um, that being said, there are there are measures people can take physically to protect themselves. You know, the BC Centre for Disease Control has advice about uh, moving to clean air. You know, using air filtration indoors. Um, being in air-conditioned spaces to protect yourself from some of those particulates. Um, and also on the mental health front, we can take proactive steps, you know, to reduce social isolation, to, to improve and maintain our mental health, um, and to reach out to other people that are, that are vulnerable. And I'm hearing a lot about new research that is showing that it affects people's brains, all the smoke that they're breathing in. Sometimes it, it's just grogginess, but it makes it harder to concentrate. And we are learning more about those effects, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're learning the air we breathe. You know, it's not just about oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, um, you know, which, of course, is a life-giving process. But it, it also does affect us in other physical and mental ways. Um, you know, the World Health Organization has commented that uh, outdoor pollution, which can include, you know, wildfire smoke, particulates, does contribute to uh, negative health outcomes and excess mortality. Um, so it's certainly uh, a threat that uh, we've, we're keeping our eye on. Yeah, and it's certainly something that uh, I, I, I hope this isn't true, but it just seems like something we're going to have to get used to. Um, well, I, I mean, and this is, this is uh, you know, a call to action, I think. You know, it's it's clear that uh, it's not just a coincidence that we're having so many wildfires. I mean, I never thought I'd see the kind of wildfires that we're seeing out east this season, you know, in Halifax right. with all those homes being destroyed and people being displaced. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think there is a call to action that, uh, you know, there are some concrete things that people can do, you know, to to mitigate against the, the, the climate-related disasters. And I think it's fair to describe them as such. You know, with you know me being a BC resident, the 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 wildfires, the flooding, you know, the heat dome, you know, all of these are interconnected, and so it's a call to action for people to to look at sort of their climate impact and what they can do around the the climate. Um, but also, it's a call to action for governments and employers to make sure that mental health supports are in place for people, um, that we're reducing social isolation, uh, that we're reaching out to our especially our vulnerable communities and vulnerable neighbors, such as elders and seniors, um, to make sure that they're okay, uh, you know, so that we can uh, mitigate against some of the harmful impacts. Right. So apart from, uh, I guess, I guess that is the most uh, impactful thing about all this is, is the social isolation, people who just, who, who cannot go and be with other people. Yeah, there's that. And there's also the direct impacts of wildfires. Of course, we've, we're talking about tens of thousands of people now that have been displaced, people that are at risk of losing their homes, their livelihoods. And that creates, you know, both immediate mental health impacts as well as sometimes delayed impacts. And sometimes, you know, so that's something we're starting to appreciate more from the pandemic experience is that sometimes while people can seem okay uh, and, and deal with the initial crisis, it can be weeks or months later that we start to see a delayed impact where people are starting to get more and more anxious or starting to get depressed or experiencing post-traumatic symptoms. And, and that is actually uh, caused by the initial event, uh, but now leading to a delayed reaction. Um, so it's important that we, we keep an eye on each other, that employers contribute um, to by, by, by making sure mental health 
supports are available to their employees, that governments contribute by making sure they're adequately funding and supporting mental health services long beyond the, the immediate impacts of a, of a disaster scenario, because we know now from science and from our, our direct experience that, uh, that there are these delayed impacts. And it certainly seems like we're more aware these days of, of mental health. But do you think that we are, are doing enough uh, in terms of the, you know, our workplaces and uh, our families? You know, you know, this is something where I can, I can really share a, a note of optimism. So as a, as a clinician, you know, specializing in mental health, I've really seen the conversation of, around mental health improve and, and the stigma start to, to be taken away. Um, we're seeing more and more investments into mental health. You know, I work at a company that provides, you know, $5,000 a year in coverage, for example, for every employee to have access to mental health uh, services, which is, which is extraordinary. And, and a call to action for others to, to, to follow suit. Um, you know, Telus Health is also involved in, in providing products and services to make sure that people have, you know, for example, unlimited mental health support through their employers. Uh, and that's another step in the right direction so that people can have access to, to mental health support. And I'm seeing governments really step in, you know, the BC government, um, governments really across the country, um, stepping in and, and contributing more and supporting more mental health services and support, both to treat people that are experiencing difficulty, but also, um, you know, much to my delight, uh, prevention, you know, engaging in mental health prevention, even in our schools, to, so that our school-aged children, as they grow up, are more resilient and, and prepared for the world that they're facing uh, to, to, to prevent mental health difficulties. Right. Do you think there are enough resources out there for people who don't have a good employment plan, a health plan? Yeah, certainly more can be done here because there are gaps in coverage. Um, and, and so we're seeing tragically uh, the results of some of those gaps. Uh, you know, we have an opiate um, overdose you know, crisis um, that can that can be partly at least partly attributable to untreated mental health difficulties. Um, we have individuals who are coming into emergency departments in critical uh, uh, critical states of distress because they haven't had access to mental health support or services or are or are on very long wait lists to access those services. Um, and just like everywhere else in healthcare right now, we're facing a shortage mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a shortage of of qualified health workers to, to help with mental health, which is why it's so important that all of us together as a society contribute to the solutions. It's not just on the healthcare system. It's actually all of us working together to collectively improve our mental health. Well, Dr. Matthew Chow, thanks for talking to us. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.